Good morning and welcome back to the Isle of Faces. I am your host, your head green folk person, Sir Buckley. You are here for part 7 of Feast for Crows and this is of course Scraps and Skulls with Isle of Faces, the sister podcast, the companion podcast to the wonderful History of Westeros' Valar Rereaders project. Yes, we are in the second half of Feast of Crows already. I'm talking to you from a, a warm but very cloudy England and that fits quite well actually with the Isle for the last few days. Yes, there's been clouds, literal and figurative, over the Isle the past few days. Um, for those of you who do follow my Twitter, you're just addicted to my tweets, you can't get enough uh, of me. A uh, little bit of a rough weekend, I'm not going to go into it all now because it's a bit of a teen drama type feel to it and uh, a bit more pathetic really. So that was a bit rough, I didn't really know if I wanted to uh, keep tweeting and keep uh, eyeing, but well... Here I am, I guess I sat down in front of the mic today, so for this episode at least we're going with it and the only reason I actually bring this up is not to moan and um, try and play a tiny violin for you all, because when I did tweet this, unsurprisingly of course, because you were always also wonderful to me, lots of very, very lovely replies, both replies and, and messages and such and well I just wanted to say thank you because some of you did say some truly, truly nice things about myself and about the aisle and and everything so i just wanted to share my quick appreciation for that because well that's always lovely to hear but it was quite needed at the time and yeah aziz said stuff and um, other people sent messages and you're all wonderful so the least i could do is try and get this episode out for you isn't it uh so yeah i might not be in the best mood today but i'm sure talking about some good old song of ice and fire doing our four chapters will get me back in the mood and well the world is always tough for everyone. This is very much first world problems. Like, who really cares? Come on here. Um, so, more to the point, I'm hoping this podcast will help you with any problems in your life because it's still a difficult time we're going through. It hasn't eased up particularly. I know lockdowns are easing and the world as we know it is coming back bit by bit. But that doesn't make it easier for a lot of people out there. So, this is for everyone who might need a bit of a boost or a distraction, as always. And um, while I'm just in the thanking mood, let me do my usual thanking of the patrons. We love you. We love you all so much. You are so wonderful and generous to us. And I want to specifically thank Lady Raj, Mistress of Force, Archmaster June, the healer of the lesser poxes, Gen T, KM, and finally Lord Commander Namian Darklin. You are always so much appreciated. Thank you, thank you, thank you again. The good news on the Patreon front is there's been some Storm's End progress. I know it's so much later than I wanted it to be. That's the unfortunate curse of doing the weekly podcast and trying to get my own uh, book out and stuff. But major progress made last week, so it's getting nearer. Do not worry about that. Further updates are coming. But let's have enough of uh, that kind of talk and patron talk. Let's get on with today, shall we? Because we have another four chapters to get through. Today we are talking Elaine 1, Cersei 5, Brienne 5 and Samwell 3. So we're going to be returning to Bravos very quickly, this time in Sam's shoes. We get a different look as compared to last week's. In terms of Sansa, it's not the longest A Song of Ice and Fire chapter, because we do know that is coming from Sansa, but it's not this week, that's next time. And again, similar to last week, this is the middle kind of chapter, the rare Sansa to the rare Ire that we had last episode. And we're back to our regular rotation of Cersei and Brienne, who we missed out last week, which was was quite odd, nice breath of fresh air to talk about something else, but don't worry, they're back in the rotation, and I think now we have Cersei every single week, so we always look forward to that, don't we? So I think maybe let's get on with it is the best option here, let's go. One final thank you again for 
so many lovely comments and you were just you're just all good friends and i appreciate it let's get going elaine one so the intro for this chapter is very similar to Aya's from last week. Like we said, it's a rare appearance, although the gap between Sansa's first and second is 13 chapters, whereas for Aya it is 18. But the gap between second and third POVs is larger for Sansa than Aya, so that evens out eventually. And this is the middle gap here. We can kind of look at Sansa as one chapter ahead of Aya and Feast. As we said last week, Aya had her arrival in her first chapter as the learning and the real introduction to her role in the second. And then we will see full immersion and comfortability in that new role by her third in Cat of the Canals. So Sansa, we already had the original arrival out of the way at the end of Storm in the Vale, in the Eyrie. So she had her learning and real introduction in her first feast chapter and has already reached the full immersion stage. Hence why this chapter is already called Elaine whereas we have to wait for Aya's third to get to Cat of the Canals. So we're just one ahead on the, the progression scale for Stark Sisters. So this is not only Sansa well into her lane role, but Peter Baelish showing off probably his best ever moment in the series. You know how it wounds me to compliment him such, but credit where it's due. He's topping the mini-meeting we had in Sansa 1 with his victory of the Lord's Declarant and all the mini-tricks he uses to win in such a fashion, some of which include Sansa herself. This is the game at its very highest and Sansa is soaking it all up while still going full hog in her role with Sweet Robin and essentially being much more confident in herself although that is just going to grow and grow as we go. It's the same uncomfortable happiness we had with Aya last week. We like to see her smiling and dancing in the rain until we remember it's a 10 year old girl laughing all men must die as she recites a list of people she wants to kill. In the same vein it's great to see Sansa confident and comfortable and he's kind of happy until we remember Littlefinger's presence and what Sansa is being a part of in regards to Sweet Robin and the larger picture of the Vale. And last note here before we get on to the text, this is our last full chapter in the Eyrie so we're waving goodbye to another great castle which is always rubbish for me particularly and it's one that we probably won't get to see again. Winter is coming, it's going to shut it off. Well I won't go on to my theories about how we could see it again, they've done enough of that in the castles book but as far as we know that's a pretty good guess. We do start off at lane 2 here, but fairly quickly Sansa and the rest are making the reverse journey we once saw Catelyn do, going down this time. And we even get Maya Stone on board. And yeah, that's about it for the beloved Eyrie, so appreciate it while you can in this chapter. As it is now, it's already a castle in change, right from the off. Sansa is mentioning the cold and the proposition of winter. Even Elisa's tears, notified to us so early when Catelyn was here, has frozen solid. We already know it as a quiet, empty castle, but Sansa points out again and again at the beginning, giving us the impression of it slowly emptying. Our time here is clearly limited, so we best get on and use it while we can. Let's kick off with our first quote of the day. As the rising sun came streaming through the windows, Elaine sat up in bed and stretched. So this is important. Fairly standard sentence there, but the name is important. Sansa is literally referring to herself as Elaine internally. She's not speaking to anyone here. This is in her own head. The immersion is full on. The curtain has fully been pulled across. Aya has been a bunch of different names, but rarely referred to herself as any of those identities internally. As I said last week, she was always Aya underneath. Now, we're not quite on Theon slash Reek levels in terms of how deeply this is affecting her psyche, but Sansa is 100% in on this new role. She's a very method actor, this girl. In fact, the act is so complete, the word Sansa only appears three times in this entire chapter. Three times in a 7,000 word chapter of her own POV. That's pretty outstanding and really comparable only to Fionn in Dance. 
And it's not even really free, if we're being honest. Two of those times are in dialogue between Peter Baelish and Elaine, in which they refer to Sansa as an entirely different person. Only once does Sansa think of herself as Sansa in this chapter, just once. And I'll save that instance for when it arrives, because the situation is pretty telling, so keep your ear out for that. Already in this early page, we see the change of Sansa. She's giving out orders to Gretchel. She's she's not rude, but she's confident. She's playing the lady. She's moved into the Maiden's Tower, which is just as fitting as it was when John, when John once fought atop the, the King's Tower at Castle Black. She's in bigger rooms. She's got all the features, a bunch of new clothes, an absolutely fantastic view. It's literally one of the best in Westeros, I think. She has moved up in the world. Again, that view and the description of it is absolutely amazing. Although note the following. A falcon soared above the frozen waterfall, blue wings spread wide against the morning sky. Would that I had wings as well. So perhaps we get the slightest of hints there that true Sansa still feels a prisoner who wants to fly away, but the main point of the passage is to point out that despite this amazing dawn and Sansa's improved conditions, everything is not well in the Vale, and the threat we heard of in her last chapter has come true. The Lord's Declarant are here. The Eyrie is essentially as close as it comes to being under siege by the 6,000 men brought by the lords, whom Sansa gives us a rundown of here in the early pages. As we mentioned in her last chapter, these are the fair lords who have been kept on the side for so long, finally being activated and making their way into the story. Sansa notes for us here, it's Yon Royce we really need to be paying attention to, but it's cool to meet this representation of a little bit of Westeros we've yet to meet. Save for Dawn, we've heavily interacted with extended lords from every realm by this point, so this is really just the veil catching up. And it's also worth noting that the Lord's Declarant, they're already kind of hedging their bets by not outright naming Peter Baelish in this document that Sansa talks about, the one they cooked up with Runestone. So the politics are beginning already, this kind of, this dance that we're, well, we're going to be dancing in any second. As Sansa dresses, she tells us of her appearance having changed in terms of her hair. And it might also be worth remembering, they have a finite supply of the dye that she uses. So that might become a factor during wins in terms of keeping her identity secret. But she also chooses a gown of classic Tully red and blue. Perhaps a random choice, perhaps a subtle bit of a subconscious nod to where her heart still truly lies with her mother and her bloodline, or maybe not. When we're introduced to Sweet Rowan down in the hall, we learn some more details on this, let's call it a polite siege. Essentially, no more food is coming up to the Eyrie and no more Myrstone with it. That's fine, the Eyrie is well provisioned, but only with long-lasting bland food all the extras and the, the benefits like eggs and melons they're staying put down below for a young spoiled lord like robert that's not cool we're not having that the lords down below likely know they don't have to put any extra measures on just yet because they are fully aware the arons always come down once winter hits anyway so they've just got to wait it'd just be helpful if they came down a little bit quicker this year or well, this season i suppose the larger point of the scene is showing how much sansa's already grown in terms of interacting with sweet robin we saw some of it last time out especially if her chapter's end, but she's going from strength to strength and seems to be the only one left in the castle that Sweet Robin actually likes, mainly because she's walked into the role of his mother and has kind of similar looks, etc. In this case, here in the chapter, she can't actually appease him in the same way we'll see later on, because the young lord is in quite a mood. He mentions it is because he can still hear Marillion singing, even though we learn he's supposed to have died. I'm not sure we ever find out why Sweet Robin can still hear him while others can't. Sansa wonders if he's mad, some have wondered if he's got a touch of the green sight or, or whatever else, some in the fandom I mean. It might be an effect of the dream wine that's also getting mentioned here. It wouldn't surprise me at all to learn Marillion is alive and Peter's just moved him somewhere where only Robert can hear him just to add to his woes and to really mess up this kid. I don't think that's happened, but it definitely wouldn't surprise me if we were going to find that out. As much as we're learning about Robert's relationship with Sansa, 
But you also see how his relationship with Peter has progressed. Or, well, not even progressed because it hasn't gone well. Littlefinger maintains a polite veneer, but you can see he's becoming much more blunt with Sweet Robin. He seems to be tiring of this little boy already, and we know that feeling is going to increase as we go, leading to a great many theories about what Littlefinger could do, or already be doing now, to rush Sweet Robin to his grave. In a moment, he's not going to pull punches with Robert, ensuring he knows he's in charge. Even when Robert's fit comes, Peter's just disgusted rather than caring, which fits the bill with him, doesn't it? Littlefinger's quite calm when it comes to discussing the lords coming up, just as he was before in the last chapter. We learn that Nesta Royce, an essential Littlefinger employee now, will be headed up to join the lords, as will Lynn Corbray, whose history Sansa launches into now, to set him up as the potential wildcard to the proceedings, the dark star of this chapter, if you will, given his tendency towards violence. We actually met Lynn back in Tyrion's time during the Vale, and he wasn't exactly friendly then, but this is the most biographical information we get about him during the rebellion. His fighting against and then joining with John Arryn is similar to many of the Stormlords that Robert absorbed into his fighting force. That's a key characteristic of that war. But the key thing we learn here, I believe for the first time, is that Lynn Corbray killed Lewin Martell upon the Trident. Killing a Kingsguard, a member of a much better quality Kingsguard than the ones we meet as well, is a pretty big deal, especially if Lewin was anything like his nephew Oberyn. So we know Lynn is someone not to trifle with. On top of that, there's another Valyrian still sore to talk about, not too long after sneaking a couple in during the Kingsmeet chapter. This time it is Lady Forlorn, who gets her first mention of the series right here. Unlike Red Rain and Nightfall from last week, Lady Forlorn has quite the history. In some form or another, it goes back all the way to the Andal invasion of the Vale and the Battle of the Seven Stars, in which the Corbrays were quite key as a first-man family. This version itself Already killed a Kingsguard in Sir Davos Darklin in 43 AC in the battle beneath the God's Eye, where you'll remember Magor killed his nephew for the throne. I know we've all read through that in Fire and Blood and enjoyed that part. He was also wielded in the Dance of the Dragons, the Blackfire Rebellions, and Robert's Rebellion, as we said. So we're interacting with real history here. And again, thank you, Fire and Blood, for bringing that part to life. Aside from setting up Lynn as a dangerous person, Littlefinger also sets up that he knows of the family relationships between Lynn and his brother Lionel. Lord Lionel, because of course he does. That's how Littlefinger makes his allies. And that's going to crop up as more important later on. And I will say this is one of George's crueler moments towards us when he names two brothers Lynn and Lionel. Thank you, George, for that. So this is where Robert has his fit and we have this discussion of how often he is leached, how much dream wine he is getting, these extra pinches of sweet sleep and the danger of it all. And we also get an Archmaester Ebro's mention just to tie us back to the prologue. It feeds into a good many theories of Peter intentionally poisoning Robin, either to keep him docile or weak or with the eventual goal of having him die. And I'd have to say I agree with those theories. It seems very likely to me. Because this is a chapter full to the brim of politics and larger ranging issues of the Vale, we kind of get away with not having so many creepy moments between Littlefinger and Sansa, but it's not a clean sheet, we don't get away completely. I submit this quote to you. He looked her with Littlefinger's eyes. I'd sooner break my fast with a kiss. A true daughter would not refuse her sire a kiss, so Elaine went to him and kissed him, a quick dry peck upon the cheek, and just as quickly stepped away. How dutiful. Littlefinger smiled for his mouth, but not his eyes. Oh, no, thank you. As we said before, and a million times before that as well, Littlefinger cannot resist. He still clearly has his ultimate motive of eventually making a move on Sansa, Lane, whatever you want to call her. It makes no difference to him. He's already completely sexualizing her and abusing her of these kissing scenarios. And uh, let's just recall from previously that Sansa had to separate 
Peter Baelish and Littlefinger as two different identities to make sense of what's going on around her. And she thinks of him as Littlefinger twice in this moment. He looks with Littlefinger eyes, meaning he's looking at her with that creepy hunger again. Uh, I know, just makes your skin prickle, doesn't it? She knows that look, she's seen it plenty, from not just from him, for plenty of other people as well, but she'd rather not give name or attention to that part of it. That is it's so sickening to watch her have to try and stay in the rules while both not actually having to kiss him, but yet not angering him too much to get punished. The worst part of it is this last comment that makes it seem like he's running out of patience and will eventually be asking for more and more forcefully. Just sickening. Fuck you, Peter Bailey. Dick. And you can see it. She, it says how quickly she stepped away. She does not want to be kissing him peck or otherwise. Yeah. Like I say, this is one of the better chapters for not having to put up with that crap, but we still have to put up with it. Okay. After being told of her duties as chief welcomer, Sansa expresses concern about being recognised by Jon Royce, and we also get a Waymar mention as Sansa remembers him passing through Winterfell what seems like centuries ago to her and us. This is where we get the first two Sansa mentions, as Peter convinces her she will not be remembered this far from the time and place. Men see what they expect to see, Elaine. He kissed her nose. So another kiss, just to creep us out, but also an ironic word on delusion, given how much Peter himself aims for that in life he, he's giving himself what he wants to see and uh, yeah we get some other hints on peter thinking about the details as he often does there's no sitting in the high hall there's no tully or aaron colors for elaine that's the kind of minutiae that he really invests himself in to get these kind of tricks to work and it, it does work so fair play before sansa turns the conversation to harren hall and we find out what we could have already guessed peter wanted the title not the building i very much doubt he actually believes in curses he can simply view what a bad investment Hall is, the bad situation it always finds itself in, the mess that the Riverlands is right now, so therefore just avoids it completely, but makes use of the title as we've seen. The more interesting part of the conversation is when Cersei is brought up. We get a mention of these tapestries that the fandom loves to obsess about a bit, but also that Baelish is prepared to remove Cersei if she doesn't remove herself first. Rereaders, we know which of those two options is going to actually come true, but it's very fun to imagine what Littlefinger was storing in his mind when it comes to plans for Cersei's removal. I guess we'll, well, you'd think we'd never find out, but it's interesting to guess. So Sansa gets on with arranging all the details for these coming lords. The seating arrangement, the candles, bread to ensure guest right, because as a northerner, that would have been hammered into her at a young age, before she settles on her attire. Lord Royce will never know me, she thought. Why, I hardly know myself. Feeling near as bold as Peter Baelish, Elaine Stone donned her smile and went down to meet their guests. See, this gives us reason to worry. One should really not be comparing oneself to Peter Baelish and be happy about it. This is her learning these tricks. We can see she's literally thinking of, okay, what would Peter do? Okay, I'm going to do that, and away I go. So now it's showtime. We get a proper introduction to Waynewood and Hunter and all the rest, again noting all the little details that can help her along the way. Lynn Corbray is given special attention again, but not as much as Bronze Yon Royce and the memories that come with it. He makes her an impressive figure, especially with the detail he so easily handled both Eddard and Roderick in the training yard of Winterfell. But we're quickly told he's not just a muscle man. Even with all of Peter's confidence and their little trick, he's still shrewd enough to nearly pick Sansa out and nearly all comes falling down there. Here's a quote. She considered throwing herself at his feet to beg for his protection. He never fought for Rob. Why should he fight for me? The war is finished and Winterfell has fallen. Bring your alas alarms, everybody. Oh, if only. Go on, Santa, just do it. How wonderful it would have been to watch Littlefinger's plan just crumble at this first hurdle. And isn't it 
heartaching for Sansa to remind herself that Winterfell's gone, only to forgivably not know that Yon really did want to fight for Rob and only didn't because of Lysa. He likely would have protected her as well, but we shall just have to dream. Either way, I'm liking Yon already. Quite the good first impression. Well, not first technically, but first here. First for a while. Immediately, we see the value of Baelish setting a seed as Nesta rescues her with a story and Sir Lynn, he turns it all into a joke, moving the focus to him and Littlefinger rather than Sansa's actual identity. They know the deal, at least some of it. They know to move the conversation away from Yon, maybe recognising her. We learn quite a bit about Lin very quickly. Namely, that he's fine making really suggestive and inappropriate comments to a teenager within hearing, and is equally fine with threatening an old lady to her face in Anya Wainwood. Once Lord gets to meeting Peter in the solar, after going past some happily placed murder holes and the such, we see both Nesta and Lin declare either their side or neutrality, respectively. But more to the point, Peter kicks off his game by completely wrong-footing the lords and lady. Not with clever field tactics or domination, but by being completely sweet and friendly when he acts as one of them. He knows they came for confrontation, and by denying them such, their game plan is already screwed. They thought, okay, we're going to go up there, have an argument, he's going to argue back, but we've got really good uh, reasons to beat him down. They do not expect to get there and him be like, yeah, I'm one of you guys, what are we going to do here? This is basically, you know, we're having a general meeting here. And that's enough for an opener and it works on 90% of them. But Bronze Jean, he bullies forward and thankfully gets Peter to be a bit more a bit more direct, as if we could ever claim such a thing about him. As with Sansa, Lord tried to shift him off into the Riverlands. You've got Harrenhal, just go over there and leave us alone. But as Peter notes, they don't exactly make it sound appealing. So he shifts the focus to Robert and makes his first serve of this political tennis match. Yeah, I was watching a lot of Wimbledon highlights last week, so forgive me. So he does that by not so subtly suggesting the young Lord would not be as equally shared as claimed. They say, that, okay, we'll take him and... Von John will have him for a while and then, he can, then we'll have a, a little bit of time. Peter says, hmm, really? Are you sure? Unfortunately, Lady Anya is straight on the volley and knows what he's up to. This is all just warm-up for Peter, though. That's fine. And he's happy to return with a ploy to gain Harold Harding, our famous Harry the Hare, the subject of many a thought about Wins and Sansa's future. We talk about Tom and Marcella as commodities, obviously, but as mentioned in Sansa's last, Robert is exactly the same. He's just liked a lot less. It's admirable that they want to take care of him, theoretically, anyway. He is still a pawn to them also. And it does sound like they'd be well prepped over in Runestone. In the long term, we can all agree he's better with almost anyone over Peter Baelish. But from Robert's point of view, he'd probably hate all this training and arms stuff. So, yeah, victory overall, probably not for him. I don't think there's really many winning situations for Robert, is there? The debate turns into how much right Lysa had to name a law protector, given that she married into the Vale rather than came from it herself. So that's interesting given Cersei's own situation and the discussions we've had recently about how women are shortchanged in how their power extends in this world and how they're attributed to power. We've talked about that a lot with Asher as well. Crucially, Peter remains completely calm throughout all of this because he still holds all the cards, or holds serve, I guess, if I'm uh, keeping my tennis analogy up. For now, he has Robert, he has the incredibly hard-to-assault castle, the impossible-to-assault castle, really, and he has the official title. They can take it all, they can take the castle, but not without cost. So while they trade barbs over who has the right to make what decision, it's really just a case of digging in the heels until no one is really sure what to do, which is Lynn Corbray's sign to step up to the stage. Corbray draws Lady Forlorn, making to threaten either Littlefinger or Lothal Brune, whichever would like to try him. And this is where we get the all-important singular Sansa mention. I'll read you the quote here. This is definitely one to take note of. 
Candlelight rippled along the smoke-grey steel of Corbray's blade, so dark that it put Sansa in mind of ice, her father's greatsword. Yes, it is no mistake that Sansa thinks of her true name just once when also thinking of Eddard Stark and their family sword. This is so very, very telling. This is an amazing detail from George here. And while some of it is because Sansa is so wrapped up in this argument that she's witnessing, we know the majority is because her true identity is still there beneath the surface, same as it is with Aya. But back to Lynn, whose sword drawing has the exact effect Littlefinger wants, as we find out later, with the Lord Declarant's argument being shot from within. Another quote here, this time from Bronzion. Put out your steel, sir. Are you a Corbray or a Frey? We are guests here. So I just really like that Frey is now synonymous with royal breaker slash bad person. While Lynn spouts off some cheesy lines that again makes me think he'd get on well with Darkstar, each lord or lady has to chide him, with Yon actually being cool enough to get up and stand in his way. Lynn leaves, but the damage is done. Their entire assault had its feet taken from underneath. Now they're on the back foot and having to apologise to this man that they came to kick out. They're supposed to be telling him off. It's an incredible swing in atmosphere and momentum and really is a masterclass being put on by Littlefinger here. So again, we have to give him his due. We'll find out in a moment this is all pre-planned, but even the first time readers have to believe Peter's reacting well on his feet when he seizes the wave and rides it acting completely indignant at this act and tarring them all with the same brush as Lynn. And that gap, that hesitation, is all Peter needs to put forth his suggestion of a year being given to right all the wrongs. He just wants a stopgap. And these are all wrongs that were totally Lysa's fault and nothing to do with him anyway. Hence, the hammer guns down for this quote here. So you say, said Belmore, yet how shall we trust you? You dare call me untrustworthy. It was not me who bared steel at a parley. You are of defending Lord Robert as you deny him food. This must end. I am no warrior, but I will fight you if you do not lift this siege. There are other lords besides you in the Vale, and King's Landing will send men as well. If it is war you want, say so now, and the Vale will bleed. Pretty forward for Peter Baelish, for being honest. As Elaine notes, that sows the doubt. Peter knows he only needs this inch, and then he can exploit it. Same as he knows, he really only needs time to break this alliance apart and secure himself. Given a little time, he'll work on each of them, as he's going to explain later, and just basically tear down this little team. This is all just getting on the court. This is just getting in the front door, really. From there, he knows how to bend the rules. He knows the suggestion of kind of a civil war here, that he has friends throughout the Vale that could threaten them at home. There's always the threat of King's Landing, which, okay, it does seem useless, but still, it's not to be discounted. So it's just enough for them to rethink, and... Each of the laws and lady fall into line perfectly now, as if reading from Peter's script itself, aside from Yon, who again paints himself as extra shrewd. He sees the game, he sees the eventual result, and he won't debase himself by being part of it. He opened the door so forcefully they all but wrenched it off its hinges. Yep, I definitely love this guy. Another quote after the meeting this time. He bewitched them, Elaine thought, as she lay abed that night. Sansa, being witness to such amazing exploits, can't help but head to Peter for a post-game show. What she can't see is that she herself is also bewitched. She's becoming a fan. Aya wants to be like Jacques and Agar or Ciro for vengeance because they've shown her skills that she wants. Sansa wants to be like Peter Baelish for the control that's been denied her for so long. She wants those skills. She wants that ability. So Peter runs down how he's likely to remove each obstacle aside from Jon Royce. But it's the question of Lynn Corbray, who it turns out is even worse than we thought with some information we get at the end here, that solidifies Sansa as well along this path of the great game. She knows he is no true enemy, but a fake one, Lynn we're talking about here. He's a plan to use a secret sword. She's learning, she's growing, and we are still a long way from seeing her at full strength. What a sight that is going to be. Let's hope she uses it for the right way. Okay, 
And that's the first chapter out of the way. We're already on to number two. This is Circe 5, Back to King's Landing after our little break. Let's go. So Circe 5 is basically just a straight-on follow-up from the brilliant Circe 4 chapters. As we go around seeing how all those little plot threads from that small council meeting and after have developed just a tad further. How all these policies that Circe is putting in place are of course failing even if she sees many of them as successful. For the most part, it's an escalation of her annoyance and plotting against Marjorie. It's where Marjorie really starts having an effect on Tommen, and that's where it stands out most for me. And really, it's just a middle ground for some of Cersei's plans before they all come really crumbling down in the next few chapters. It starts off like this. The king was pouting. Oh, <laughs> Tommen. As mentioned, this is where the little guy, he really comes out to shine now, and he rebels against his mother's rule. Hasn't really shown any tendency to do that yet, but, well, it's coming out now. Some of this is probably due to Cersei's own strictness, but the larger influence is Marjorie really getting her rose claws into him. It's small, it's subtle, it's mostly about little things that don't matter at all right now, but it's working. And worst of all, Cersei knows it's working. She knows this is being taken away from her. Right from the first page, we have him resisting and claiming and being his own person, even if it is in quite a cute way. Quite, it's quite the comparison to Paul Marcella, who, at the same time, roughly, is being raced across a desert before being mutilated. So there's two very different approaches to gaining a monarch from the Tyrells and Martells here. Being so young, Tommen doesn't exactly put up a fight admitting that Marjorie told him this, Marjorie told him that, and it doesn't take us long to work out that Marjorie slash the Tyrells are trying to empower Tommen just a little bit as a way of depowering Cersei. The more they get Tommen, the less Cersei has power in general, even if it is by small percentages at the moment. You can hardly blame them, to be fair. The rule was hers. Cersei did not mean to give up until Tommen came of age. Okay, interesting. This is an internal thought, but how much do we really believe this? She's already obsessive over her power. She's already paranoid about people taking it from her. We've said a million times about how she's just been waiting. This has been her, the purpose of her life. As she states here, again, she's had to wait. She's been pushed aside by so many men. So the idea of finally getting what has always been the main target, only for another woman, one that so fits well into the prophecy, to come and take it away, that is unbearable for Cersei. She now finally has this power. She's not going to give it up easily. Even a few years down the line, even if the war was done and won and everything was rosy, no pun, I think we all expect Cersei would try and cook up some excuse to either keep Regency or at least keep huge unofficial control over Tommen slash the Iron Throne. So as Cersei notes, the day hasn't started out great and it means to go on that way as we get the follow-ups to her many happy decisions in Cersei 4. Giles Rosby, he's not doing well. He needs more money. Or Rainwaters, he wants more money for his ships, which... She's happy to pay in that case. The sparrows, she was so assured, weren't her problem this chapter, are turning into a problem. And, well, just wait for the next chapter if you think they're a problem here. She even thinks how she'll need more gold cloaks, ignoring the fact she's just giving away any available money and already stripped the city of our men to help contain the sparrows, as we mentioned last time, and we will next week in Jamie's chapter also. She's arguing with Pycelle again, who we surprisingly side with for once, when he wants older, experienced men to help serve on Orain's ships, rather than the younger men that Orain wants. Unfortunately for Pycelle, Orain's thing fits right in with Cersei's out-with-the-old obsession. Everything that came before her was a bad idea in her mind. She doesn't want to be tainted with any of that. So she wants these new men, because Cersei quite likes young new men, actually. So does Orain, because young men, promised the chance to rebel and strike out on their own and earn some plunder and fame, are way more likely to come with him when he steals the ships a bit later, instead of older, seasoned men who have already had their loyalty forged in battle. So we can see the setup for that. 
And Cersei ignoring the fact that these captains survived the Blackwater, in which any of them on Cersei's side would have been vastly outnumbered, is also ridiculous. It's very silly. She has this quote. No mother should outlive her children, and no captain should outlive his ship. That's an interesting quote for her specifically to use, because in terms of children, she's one down and two to go. But the second clause relates pretty strongly to the next point that gets raised in this chapter. We're already talking about the Blackwater, but another captain who outlived his ship is dear Davos. Unfortunately, it's not good news as we get yet another follow-up from the small council meeting that we witnessed, and it's reported that Davos has indeed been executed by Wyman Manderley. For rereaders, it's extra joy that Cersei has false information, the, the ploy is working, and it gets Willis back to White Harbour, and we get to enjoy the secret knowledge that Davos lives with a secret mission. The first time is though, bad feeling in the pit of the stomach, isn't it? This, if we discussed it last time. What a terrible way for a fan favourite to be killed off-screen. And there's no indication that we would get another Davos POV, so it's perfectly understandable to believe this. And it just makes it even worse. That fact would be terrible enough on its own, but it's even worse that Cersei is here taking joy in it. And Wyman Manley definitely being aligned with the Lannisters or against Stannis and the Starks after what we saw of him through Bran goes to show us how far the North has fallen. It's very sobering. We're like, oh, there, there really isn't any pro-Starks left. They are all just jumping ship after this whole deal we made of the Northerners being made of stronger stuff and being a bit more loyal. Luckily, we'll find out how true that statement is when we actually get to dance. We also have an update on Storm's End and Mace being due for another failure down there, of course. And the word Manganel is used here when uh, Cersei is talking about this siege of Storm's End and I have to put my hand up. Don't know what that was. What the hell is a Manganel? So just in case you're the same as me, it's basically the type of thing you normally see on cartoons or TV shows in terms of what I might call a trebuchet or a catapult or something like that. An arm wound down by a string of rope and then released. So that word struck out for me this time around. I don't know, don't know about you. It actually does appear in Catelyn's chapters in Clash when she meets Renly's camp at Bitterbridge. And it will be mentioned twice by Tyrion outside Marine later in Dance. Uh, and actually one of them is in his Winds preview chapter. So, little history lesson for you all there. It's all irrelevant anyway, because Manganel, Trebuchet, really big boxing glove, none of it is going to work against Storm's End and its perfect walls. And, well, I've been talking about that as I record the Storm's End chapter, so I know what I'm talking about here. Rereaders, again, will know this is going to come to no result or a loss for Cersei, so more rotting seeds being planted here. And we keep going with this following up of the small council. Again, it turns out a non-problem actually is a problem, this time with the Iron Bank. Yes, Giles Rosby really was a foolish appointment. He's not getting anything done and Cersei now has to do the job for him when she meets with the Iron Bank envoy here. This is what she thinks when she's meeting with him. He had the insolence to scowl at her. Cersei makes a point of thinking about the Iron Throne looming behind her as she has this meeting. She believes she should be on it, should be getting the respect it commands. As before, anyone who speaks against her is insolent. There's no such thing as a well-made point if it isn't a point in her favour. And so she's so obsessed with that idea of just like, you should not be asking me because this isn't what I want to hear. So please go away, basically. She brushes off the envoy. This is barely even a meeting and just sticks her golden head in the sand, hoping the Iron Bank will just kind of go away. So like we say, she gets rid of Noho Domitus, that's the envoy quickly enough, onto another following up, this time post small council meeting. It turns out even her most confident plan about Osney seducing Marjorie isn't working out either even with Osney being named Sworn Shield to Tommen. And that's a pretty big leap for him to gain that title so quickly. He's pretty new to this city, 
He's well, he's not the least known of these strange brothers. I guess he's second, isn't he? Osfried is the third. Sandor again at least had some infamy to him. He'd been around for ages, and he was he was sworn shield for years. This is not the case with Osney. He really shouldn't be jumping up this quickly. And well, that's the same for the other brothers as well. They jump up. We're going to talk about Osman being given command of the Kingsguard in Jamie's absence next week. That's way too big of a jump. Osfried becomes command of the City Watch way too quickly. So it's just Cersei weakening different officers all over the place, not just for the Kettle Blacks, but just in general. She's weakening the institutions of her own government. So during this discussion, Osman raises the issue that Marjorie supposedly likes Osney, but is always surrounded by people. Sansa might think courtesies are a lady's armour, but in Marjorie's case it appears ladies are a lady's armour. That's some clever planning by the Tyrells, but there's also plenty of men to complicate matters. Cersei is very interested in these names. Rereaders notice that the ones listed are the ones she has arrested later on for fornication and treason and such. And these names in the next this chapter and the next couple are going to get brought up over and over again. So we know George is really kind of telling us, pay attention, that's going to turn up later. Osman has this to say. I'll tell him, your grace. He's eager for that ride, don't think he ain't. She's a pretty little thing, that filly. It's me he's eager for, fool, the queen thought. All he wants of Marjorie is the lordship between her legs. Cersei, th- she thinks of Osmond as slow, but she's being no quicker here. Osney does want Cersei, we've seen that. No doubt he wants the eventual lordship as well, but she's being obtuse to not think a man like Osney would be sexually attracted to someone like Marjorie. That's a clear sign of the denial of both Marjorie being young and attractive and of Cersei's own ageing. She doesn't want to re- relent her greatest power in the same way she doesn't want the prophecy coming true. Speaking of Marjorie, Cersei... Ag- comes up against her as she strolls past the yard. It's in the shadow of the burnt Tower of the Hand, so this is supposedly the site of a Cersei victory, if you want to call it that, but we see anything but in the yard. Tommen is on his horse, riding at a quintain, and having the time of his life. It's heartwarming to see, we know he likes this kind of stuff from the Clash opening chapter, Sansa's opening chapter. Not only is he finally allowed to do it, but he's good at it, and everyone's cheering him. It's a, it's a great time, there's no Joffrey to cast a shadow, there's no war taking up everyone's attention, at least not in Tommen's uh, viewpoint. And we see the Tyrells also extending far more than just the one branch. Sir Loras is complimenting him. Marjorie is complimenting him. All the cousins are complimenting and shouting, champion, champion, champion. What little boy wouldn't be taken in by it all, really? There's a long argument whether the Tyrells hold any genuine affection for Tommen. I certainly don't think they wish him ill, but also they are definitely moving to just control him. So it's, it's a bit of sweet mixing Tommen's happiness with what he can't see. But to be fair... They are all doing a lot more for his personal development than Cersei ever does. I think we can agree, out of the two, we'd probably choose him to be as the Tyrells and Cersei. Witnessing this scene, Cersei gets uber jealous and feels uber threatened. She puts her stamp on the room, or the yard I guess, again forgetting how to be polite or play the game. And pure sweet Tommen doesn't even notice and it leads to this great exchange. One day you shall rule the lists as your father did. But I never knew that King Robert was so accomplished at the joust. Pray tell us, your grace, what tourneys did he win? A flush crept up Cersei's neck. The girl had caught her out. That's brilliant. That's one of the funniest parts of the book. Cersei is getting lax after 15 years of managing to keep a secret about Jaime and herself. And now Robert has been dead for nearly two. She's almost letting the cat out of the bag. It's brilliant that Marjorie catches out so quick. And she really does have this super quick reaction to notice Cersei slip and then pounce on it. Just like Sir Pounce went. People discuss how much of a pawn Marjorie might be for her own family's ambition, but this is one of the best instances for proving how formidable and quick-witted she is in her own right. Cersei gives her best cover-up story, which is not a good one, and gets the hell out of there. Instead, 
turning her wrath on Sir Loras as she tries to curtail this latest Tyrell invasion. We see her self-obsession as she believes Loras calls Marjorie Queen only to annoy Cersei. Of course, he calls her that. For one, he's right, she is the Queen. For second, it's his sister, so of course he's going to give her the proper title. Loras puts up an admirable defence about how Tommen needs to be nurtured along in some respects of life and no one seems to be doing it. And maybe Joffrey could have done a bit more of that, couldn't he? Cersei has this thought in reply. The Knight of Flowers was no sort of man for any boy to emulate. As an amazing example of Cersei's foolish prejudice, Loras is the poster boy for what every boy in the Seven Kingdoms would try to emulate. He's the knight. And what makes it even more ironic is that we've discussed at length how Loras is basically the next version of Jaime. But Cersei's too stupid to see that. What she means to say is he's too Tyrell for any boy to emulate in her mind. Cersei also thinks of a few possibilities for a new Master of Arms. I think she's being facetious when telling Loras she's been too busy to think of naming a new one, but if she's being honest, she actually hasn't thought of it at all. Because she's Cersei, she settles on naming a Dornish one, purely to piss off the Tyrells. Great hiring policy, there's no uh, who would be best, who would Tommen like, who would fit well, what will piss off the Tyrells the most. Okay, I'll do that. Not really the lone example of that kind of thinking, is it? Now it's Kyben time, which is always enjoyable. Cersei is tired of plots and treasons, as she calls it. Why doesn't this seem as easy as it did last chapter? Everything's going wrong when it seemed to go so right uh, last time. Well, Cersei, it's going to get worse as we move forward through this book, so prepare yourself. Kyburn, he starts off with news from Essos. First, the nearer, with the war between Tyrosh and Lys, and yet more news on the Golden Company. Cersei dismisses it again, but even first-time readers will see George has brought this up several times in a book that has nothing to do with it, so we are clearly meant to be taking notice. Kyburn follows up news of Daenerys in Marine, and Cersei even shows off some surprising knowledge about the far-off city and its harpies, but she ultimately dismisses that news as well. Let the slaves revolt, why should I care? So we're back to the it's-not-my-problem line of thinking, even though we've seen the result of that already in this chapter. So Kyburn moves on to instead news of Dawn, and that pricks our ears up. We remember a few chapters ago when we had some Dornish news, so we know something has happened. Are we about to see some of the reaction, perhaps learn something we didn't there? Well, first it's news that Damon Sand has been imprisoned for supporting the Sand Snakes, so that's not to do with the Ariane chapter. We might remember him slightly from Storm, but he wasn't a part of Ariane's plan at all, as far as we know. Still, this sets him up a bit more for his role as Ariane's companion in Winds. You can see that in her preview chapters. Of more interest, and I have to say I completely forgot that we learnt this prior to Ariane's final chapter, is that Silver Santagar has been sent off to marry ancient Lord Estamont. That can be really easy to miss as a first-timer, because the name Silver isn't actually used by Kyburn, but it shows that Duran has reacted to Ariane's failed ploy and punishments have started being handed out. What does this mean for Ariane? We don't find out here. What about the others? We don't know yet. We'll save the talk of uh, Silver's actual fate until that last Ariane chapter, but what it tells us more is that Kyburn has some really reliable informants in Dawn, or perhaps Duran has some really good people whispering what he wants into Kyburn's ear. Could be one or the other. Cersei again dismisses it as unimportant. She seems completely against the notion that knowledge is power, instead choosing to reminisce about cheating on Robert with Jaime and Joffrey's possible conception. Kyburn even tries to spell out of her and us, why it might be important because it connects to Ariane, but Cersei rejects him, and Kyburn seemingly tires of holding the spoon for this grumpy baby. And the whole thing is ironic when you think about it, because Cersei is effectively being told about an attempt on her daughter's life, 
but she's not interested. Now, of course, she doesn't know that's what Kyburn is talking about here, but it's still just a, a little bit of irony. And what's funny is that set against all these things she brushes off uh, that she probably really should be interested in, what she actually chooses to be interested in is Kyburn's news of an anti-Lannister puppet show where a dragon shows up at the end. So she lays down some fines, 50% total wealth, just for watching the thing. You get half of your total wealth taken away, and if you're in it, well, you just die, you get killed. This is the hill she chooses to make a stand on. No, we don't want to talk about wars, we don't want to talk about possible dragons, or what's going down in one of my kingdoms. I want the puppet show dealt with. In fairness, this kind of anti-regime sentiment doesn't need to be monitored, but Cersei really isn't prioritising here, is she? Besides, she doesn't understand the concept of creating martyrs, which is all she's going to do here. But it's also the threat to her own power that bothers her. I wonder if there's some foreshadowing here of one dragon or another coming to defeat the Lannisters by way of real dragon or Targaryens. I think it's a, a strong bet. To end the meeting on a creepy note, because this is Kyburn after all, he wants more subjects for his torturous experiments. Specifically, he wants more women. Now, is that based on, on science? Is there something he needs to know particularly that only women can provide? Or is there a terrible to think about sexual element in what he's up to down there? Neither bear thinking about in the same way that Cersei tries not to think about poor Sinel, who seems to have met her end, at least her suffering might be over now. And Cersei's memory of Sinel going down with her willingly, of her not understanding when the chain gets put on her, that really is heartbreaking, isn't it? I don't like imagining that at all. Even if Sinel was a spy, she didn't deserve this end, and there's always the possibility she was innocent. And yet, and yet, even with these memories, Cersei happily condemns two more women to the same fate. Utter, utter evil. The revolving door of this chapter keeps on spinning as Cersei tries to relax in the bath when Jaime and Tommen enter the scene, and Tommen is continuing with his mini-rebellion again. It's on the subject of jousting and horses and Loras this time. Well, again, really. And Tommen is really sticking to his guns, even as Cersei decides to be up front with her blame of Marjorie. I command it, Tommen dares to say. He has, he's really jumped up a level in this chapter. The Tyrells are clearly having an effect. Just to annoy Cersei more, Jaime finds this all terribly amusing and offers no help whatsoever, outwardly undermining all that she has to say. Again, we see the same themes as earlier. Tommen being made to indulge his own power in order to lessen Cersei's as we see when he answers that he is the king to Cersei's I am your mother. So we're actually getting a huge direct threat to Cersei's position here and the argument of who controls who, basically. So Cersei tries a gentler approach for once, although she does also threaten paint the whipping boy, and that seems to get through. Adoringly, Tommen still wants to have a kitten, and he also wants to outlaw beats. This is just a darling child that we're allowing these crows to fight over here. So Tommen leaves, allowing the siblings to have one of their final fights really I mean, we get a very quick interaction in jamie's next chapter but this is kind of it it seems cersei has set jamie to wall inspection duty just to keep him bored before the two of them fight over this new master of arms business and note that jamie is actually giving loris his due even when cersei is not the issue of having jamie not only as a twin but a lover is that the two of them have essentially been on equal footing their whole lives even if jamie has only recently chosen to act like it so he feels free to challenge her leading to this she was tired of Jamie bulking her. No one had ever bulked her lord father. When Tywin Lannister spoke, men obeyed. When Cersei spoke, they felt free to counsel her, to contradict her, even refuse her. It is all because I am a woman, because I cannot fight them with a sword. They gave Robert more respect than they give me, and Robert was a witless sot. This is a really incredibly interesting discussion point, because oh so rarely, Cersei is actually right. But also kind of wrong. 
is absolutely a huge factor that she is a woman and therefore gets less respect for that fact on its own. Sexism and misogyny and chauvinisticness, is that the word? They're all rife across all of Westeros, especially in the political office. They are still mired in the belief that brute strength means much more than it actually does. And Cersei would have a very different time of it were she male. That, there's no argument about that. And we should pay large attention to that fact, making up so large of a part of who she is. That She's well aware of that fact, and it really plays into her own views of womanhood and other women and the men as well, as we've discussed. But at the same time, she is wrong in this statement. They don't bulk her because she's a woman, or, to be fair, in some cases, not just because she's a woman. It's because she's rubbish at what she does. She can't play the game. She can't rule. Plain and simple, that's the end of it. She is halfway through her arc now. This is Cersei 5, there's 10 Cersei chapters, and we've found absolutely indisputable proof of that fact already. She cannot rule. She's ignorant, she's self-obsessed, she has zero forward-thinking skills, and is purely rubbish as a leader. Plus, Tywin did get bulked at. He spent half his life as a joke, because of Ares. It's just not the most recent version that she and we saw. And there was worth in respecting Robert, because, okay, new king, he looks like he's going to get a distance. It's not so for her. She looks like she's on her way out already and everything is not going well at all. And also Robert had a big supporting cast behind him, says he does not. And that's not just because of her own fault, but a lot of it is. Still, her main point is plenty valid. There's no denying it. So just as Cersei is thinking about how she needs Jamie gone from the city for good, the two of them trade some final stinging words before we move on to the next scene, another supper with the Stokeworths. Before we get to them, we have Cersei's famous declaration that our washerwomen are shrinking her clothes and that Tana Merriweather has to save them from being whipped. This is much discussed as Cersei being so blind as to not notice her in drinking and ageing are helping her put on weight. This narcissism, again, she's just, just doesn't occur to her. And the final quote before the guests arise is this time on Malara Heatherspoon. She's dead and drowned, and she taught me never to trust anyone but Jamie. So it's a good timing for that quote, considering what she has literally just thought about her brother. Cersei starts out the meeting with fake smiles and courtesies. She says sweet Felice and brave Balman, even while privately thinking about how Lady Tander will die soon and Cersei isn't exactly sorry to hear about it. We have this quote from her. The stable boy should have seen the strap was worn. He has been chastised. Severely, I hope. That's from Cersei at the end there. This chapter really goes above and beyond for servants and small folk receiving huge punishments for the games that their bosses are playing. We've already heard about Sanel and paying the ultimate price. This stable boy as well. Cersei nearly whipping the washerwomen and deciding on deducting their much-needed wages in the end as though that's a kind of choice and everything to do with the puppeteers that we mentioned. So this kind of thing is always present but it really seems to stand out in this chapter. We get a little bit of setup in terms of Rosby's ward and what will happen once Giles passes away. Reread doesn't know that Giles will indeed pass but this plotline hasn't really reared its head too much in the future yet. It's certainly not going to matter too much to the people at this table because we know what's going to happen. And we also find there's sparrows on the road still with Cersei finally admitting she might even have to take a hand to them, but not just yet. The ascension of the next High Septon isn't going as planned either, but that's a story for another time. That's one we're going to cover a lot in Cersei 6. Cersei summons her best acting chops to convince Felice and Bowman to aid her in her quest to destroy Bronn, who is basically taking over Stokeworth at this point. She uses flattery, vulnerability, all to finally place Bowman as her cat's paw, as she puts it. It certainly is fitting with the way she likes to do things. The High Septon, Jon Snow, Marjorie in a certain way, Robert in another. She has a playbook, definitely. She even suggests a hunting mix-up, as befell her late husband. Another plot formed, another one we'll see fail soon enough. We don't have to wait too long. Cersei ends the chapter 
by first checking in on Tommen and his new kittens, which, again, we just love this kid, but then reserving her thoughts for the past and Rhaegar Targaryen, whom she really goes out of her way to put on a pedestal, thinking of him as nothing less than a god. She became obsessed with him as a child. He was the beautiful toy she believed she deserved. And she was told so, to be fair. And we also see her own issues with womanhood when she declares Elia Martell unworthy merely because of the size of her chest. We also hear of Tywin's secret smile. Hmm. Don't get that often, do we? So this has clearly been a chip on her shoulder her entire life. She thinks she was cheated out of what she was supposed to get in terms of marriage. And that obsession, that being in love with Rhaegar, that's quite funny, really, because we all think either his son or his sister is going to come and be her ultimate downfall. So, sweet irony there. So that is Cersei 5 in the books as well. That's the second chapter of the day. We're halfway through. And I will take a quick second here, because I know I haven't been doing the halftime shout-outs. I don't think I've done any of them in Feast. And don't worry, that's not because there isn't any content to talk about there in the fandom, because there is loads, of course there is. It's merely me trying to cut down a little bit on the time I have to give over to podcasts and editing and such. I've been trying to just include them more in the talk as we go and do it on Twitter, etc. But I will take a special exception here because I just want to mention Davos Fingers, our beloved brothers over there in the States. I know we all love and adore. They reached episode 100 recently, a couple of weeks ago now. And well, that's an achievement in itself, isn't it? Well done to them. Well done, well deserved. But also, I want to mention that they've started a new little mini series of episodes that are basically what ifs in terms of if one key event or some key events had gone differently in big points in Westeros history how would that affect the future so it's basically an alas alarms podcast you know we like talking about that here on the aisle so far they've had what robert died on the trident instead of rhaegar well, obviously that's a well, you can't get really much bigger in terms of how that would affect the entire country and they talk about how that would affect cersei what would rhaegar do about the prophecies so we get dragons etc i well i mean i know you've all listened to this already but still just in case you haven't you need to and the most recent uh, a couple of weeks ago was what if Oberyn had won against the mountain and what happens then with his plans for Tywin and will Tyrion actually survive because he won't be officially executed but will Cersei just have him kind of knifed in the dark anyway well you know we spoke about that back when we were doing those chapters so really good idea for a set of podcasts and well just well done again to the guys episode 100 we're so lucky to have 100 episodes to listen to you guys with I know it's recently the anniversary of the guys starting off that podcast so well done to them and to everyone else who's again you're all making constant content for us all the time i wouldn't have time to shout it all out but well done to all content creators and well done to all members of our fandom and again i'm going to sneak it in here once more thank you for being so wonderfully over to the weekend i'm not trying to throw a pity party by uh, mentioning it at the start of the episode here or tweeting about it but I, I said it's unsurprising how wonderful you are because you're always wonderful but it does actually knock my socks off that you're so complimentary to me and uh, protective over someone for your family okay that's it for the mini halftime shout out let's return to our chapters let's get on with Brienne 5 so Brienne 4 that we had last time with the whispers and the ending of Nibble Dick Crab that is a hard act to follow isn't it that long wind up to an exceptional ending some of the coolest action we get in the entire book now has to be absorbed and guilted over by Brienne on a red face to return to Maidenpool she admits her quest has come to a complete loss she doesn't know what to do for her and obviously for Dick Crab that's a weight she's going to f- carry forevermore as we'll see throughout this chapter and Brienne oh no what's this 
sorry, just uh, whilst recording, quick email there. Just uh, got my first rejection for the uh, proposals that I sent out for my novel recently. That's cool. Don't normally get a reply. They uh, put that in the books. Oh, well done you, everyone listening. You're hearing live the uh, escapades of trying to get a book published. Okay, so uh, anyway, back to business. Brienne 5 is intentionally a bit more empty and comes close to being the last good Brienne chapter before we get a near unstoppable line of great chapters to finish her arc. What saves Brienne 5, and for many, might be one of the best parts of Brienne entirely, is the famous speech we have coming at the end of the chapter today. We've reached the Broken Man speech, one of the most important, beautiful parts of the series that hits out at multiple themes, not just of Feast, but of the larger message of A Song of Ice and Fire. These books are about many things, of course, but one of the things it is most about is its anti-war message, and this speech is the most direct stare-at-the-camera moment we have of that message being delivered as George considers an entirely different subset of victims and consequences from the great game that we have already been witnessing throughout, but have never had summed up so eloquently. It is almost tempting to skip the chapter and go straight to it because it's so amazing and chapter-defining, but we will resist. I think there's several put-down-the-book moments in the series. And we, we all know the well-knowns. We've, we've all definitely all done it for the Red Wedding and the others as well. And this has to join those ranks, despite nothing actually happening. The plot doesn't change here. It's just someone talking to someone else, just telling a story. Just an old man telling a story. But the hard-hitting emotion of what's happened to him and fellow men and women countless times throughout Westerosi history, and our own as well, it welds me up, I'll be honest. It could not be more on point. You have to put that book down after reading this. But we're not there yet. Definitely, this is the type of chapter that is better on reread. First time round, it can seem quite pointless until we reach the end. Brienne does, okay, align herself with a, a new quest or a new direction, but it's definitely not what we're used to. Second time, without the urge to find out and the knowledge of what's coming, it makes the whole chapter far more interesting, 100%, so, to say nothing of that ending. So let's begin. And we actually begin with Brienne not being able to escape her recent killings, literally or emotionally. Hyle Hunt, he still wants to bring them back to Randall Tarley's evidence, wants to bring the heads back. He knows he'll need it, and Brienne will definitely need it, she's to be believed. We spoke last time about Brienne not being able to take any sort of glory in this killing, or these killings. Even if it was clearly good for the world, there was just no winning in this type of arena. Brienne wants to forget, but that ain't happening, so the Dark Heads follow her all the way back down the gloomy trip to Maidenpool, which is somehow even less fun than last time. Many in opinion will begin to change on Hyle Hunt in this chapter, and that begins right here when we get back to Maidenpool, and thank you George for not detailing the trip a second time, when he speaks up not just for Brienne, but Pod as well. Brienne thinks, He will most like tell Lord Randall that he slew all three of them. To his honour though, the knight did nothing of the sort. It's important to use that word honour, considering we're in a Brienne chapter. Now Randall, he is incredulous when he hears the news, because he obviously wouldn't have expected such success from a woman. But instead of mentioning any praise or even credit on Brienne, he switches to results-based. Did she find Sansa? No, so everything is mere details. You're just boasting about the three rats, according to him. There's no actual victory. And Brienne is totally honest when asked if she enjoyed it. Of course she didn't. And Randall presses quick with his original opinion that she should go home. They let her have a turn of her sword, now let the men get back to it, is basically what he says. When Brienne refuses, said offer. Randall gets even more huffy, and again, Hyle steps up to his credit, he says this. I watched her fight the mummers. She is stronger than most men, and quick. The sword is quick, Tarly snapped. That is the nature of Valerian steel. So it's the sword versus arm debate, raising its head again as Randall tries to pass off Brienne's exploits as oath keepers. 
Would he do the same for Heartsbane? Mm, no, probably not. He merely wants to discredit her as much as possible. So Brienne thinks, his sort will never love me, no matter what I do. And we can pick this line up and place it in a Sam chapter, can't we? Because that's equally true for him. Randall won't love Sam for all he's achieved on the wall and beyond. If he graduates and becomes a maester, it won't matter. He claims it's because he wanted Sam to become a man and a warrior in Sam's youth. But I honestly think, even if Sam turned up on the doorstep looking like... Rolly Duckfield or Duncan the Tall, Randall still wouldn't accept him at this point. The hate just runs too deep to turn it around. And notice again, we have a Brienne chapter next to a Sam, a Brienne that features Randall. Last time Sam followed Brienne, it was also after Randall's appearance, so George knows what he's doing with this chapter sequence and stuff. Brienne pushes forward with trying to find a new option for her goal, somehow ignoring Randall's cruelty, turning the conversation to Sandalk again as the next possibility. And Randall, he lets slip how frustrated he is that he can find no bandit leaders, whether it be supposed Sandor, as we call him, or Beric, whom we know he's not even actually chasing anymore. And we even get a Stoneheart reference, and that's pretty interesting. Not just because of where Brienne ends up in this book, but hinting of Stoneheart's coming east. Because we last saw her at Old Stones, which is the complete other side of the Riverlands. Randall, he gets even more indignant at the idea of Brienne achieving what he could not, so it's just ego all over and he continues with his rudeness and horribleness when suggesting that Brienne will eventually find rape for her efforts and giving the impression that that would be deserved and according to Hyle later this pretty much dead on what he says then going so far as to say he will not suffer her under his roof as if she is, she is the criminal instead of the three she just slayed so it's time for Hyle again telling the truth about Brienne's victory that shouldn't really be used as a reason for us lightening up to Hyle in my opinion it definitely doesn't make up for what he's done in the past to her. This is just really the bare minimum he should be doing anyway. Yes, he should be telling the truth. She did kill all three of them. But it is cool to see that even from someone else's POV, Brienne looked amazing in her fight. In fairness to Hyle, there's no call to go the extra mile, as he does now when he puts his job, or more, on the line. Beg all you want. I will not suffer you beneath my roof. So Hyle Hunt stepped forward. If it pleased my lord, I'd understood that it was still Lord Mooton's roof. So that's much more worthy of our admiration, and that kicks off a bit more reader sympathy for him. Certainly, Hyle himself seems to have been turned around on his opinion of Brienne. Maybe because he's seen her in true action, although he has seen measures of that before, or is it because he's got this idea of marrying her into his head? Hmm. We can give him some brownie points for being committed enough to Brienne that he doesn't mind being kicked out of Randall's company. It's interesting to think whether it was witnessing Brienne kill the three mummers that turned around his thinking, or merely re-meeting her the first time at Maidenhall. He was colder towards her then, but I think his listing of what happened to all the others who taunted and abused Brienne thanks to the war is actually him grappling with his own guilt and about his part in it all. War has obviously reframed how he looks at things. They are no longer the Knights of Summer, after all. Or perhaps it is just witnessing how dedicated she is to her oath. Could be. And that's inspired him to do something better than guard duty. I doubt I'll ever personally be totally on board with Harl as a person, but I can see George continuing to shine him in at least a, a better light than before as we go on. But all of this, it only leads to more cruelty from Randall, of course. Telling cruelty, is the quote. It is said your father is a good man. If so, I pity him. Some men are blessed with sons, some with daughters. No man deserves to be cursed with such as you. Live or die, Lady Brienne. Do not return to Maidenpool whilst I rule here. What a dick. Told him to fuck off last time, let's do it again here. Fuck off, Randall. This is obviously intentionally cruel, with no purpose other than to wound, and it reeks of his own insecurities. We see the Tywin in Randall again, because clearly, when he is speaking of men being cursed with children they do not want, he is thinking of his own Sam. Perhaps he is even jealous of Selwyn Tarth. Randall got a son who is somehow less than a warrior 
or less of a warrior rather, than this man's daughter, a truth that eats him up inside. He clearly believes he did not deserve to be cursed with such a Sam and is taking it out on Brienne. And the notion that Brienne is neither son nor daughter is also incredibly cruel and really plays havoc with her own identity and gender issues. It suggests she has no place merely because she is being who she truly is, and clearly that will resonate strongly with so many readers of this series. It's an awful wounding thing to say that somehow Brienne still manages to brush off and not crack from, although we can see the toll it takes. After Randall, Harl is good again, promising to speak to his cousin to find some information, though he maintains he only does so to taunt said cousin, not to actually help Brienne. While Brienne and Pod go off in search of a bed, they wind up on the docks and witness a certain ship casting off, is a quote. Half a dozen were in port, though one, a Gallius, called the Titan's daughter, was casting off her lines to ride out on the evening tide. Yes, the very same. I don't know if it's Gallius or something else, but I'm going with Gallius. The very same Gallius that carried Aya to Bravos. It's obviously made its return journey, and so we know the, some of the people on board there. Really, we have to pay even more attention to these ship names as we go, and that'll probably be even a more important habit to get into for wins. It's not enough just for having someone notice it. Yeah, call cool, this cool, a nice Easter egg for George to throw in. But it has to be Brienne just to twist the knife because she's looking at something where one of her two prizes was. She's always surrounded by clues and leads yet has no idea about any of them. Through no fault of her own, it's just George being evil. We get actually a lot of mentions of ships in this port, perhaps to show how Brienne has so many untaken paths. She again thinks of Goldtown and the Vale, for example, and Pod's just the north again as well. Brienne is at another crossroads. She has gained nothing since her first visit and the frustration shows. Again, she maintains the ships are always a backup plan and opts for dry land this time round. Finally abed, Brienne has a rough night of it. She dreams of those she killed, and that's to be expected. She dreams of those who have wronged her, like Randall Tarly or Red Ronnet, but the worst is dreaming about Nimble Dick and the feeling that he might come to kill her. Clearly, the guilt is damn heavy and it will not leave Brienne for a long time. She never meant for it to happen, it can't really be attributed to her as her fault, but she'll forever blame herself. We see a bit of that when Brienne returns to the stinking goose and tells of Dick's fate, and like the last time we came here, the woman at the bar doesn't exactly give off the best impression of Dick when she assumes that he either cheated or raped or stole from Brienne. She thought he would get sent off to the wall at some point or be murdered so i think we can infer that dick was definitely no saint which is what makes this whole situation so complex as discussed at length last time out the distrust that brienne had with dick has not abandoned her as she's convinced that hyle hunt only promised to meet her as some joke she's been so wounded before that those scars of distrust simply won't heal over when hyle appears he finally gives brienne a much needed direction with his half true half misled information about supposed sandor as no, it's mentioned he's looking for a ship, Sandor says. That's a clue that will kick in after this book is finished, when we connect Rorge with trying to do the same things as fellow members were in Tibian, etc. Yes, Hyle lines out the geographic situation, thinking he's talking about actual Sandor again, but just because he's wrong about the identity doesn't mean the information's bad. Rorge and the others are kind of trapped, and this is the chance for Brienne to do some catching up. The extra information on Stoneheart is, as always, foreboding for this new trio as well. Because a new trio is what it is when Harl announces he is coming with them. He doesn't request or suggest, just states. And again, Brienne resorts to distrust. Did Lord Randall command you to follow me again? He commanded me to stay away from you. Lord Randall is of the view that you might benefit from a good hard raping. Yes, let me tell you, I do not enjoy having to read that quote out. Again, fuck off Randall. Let's do it again. Fuck off Randall with this whole notion of Brienne needing a good rape to sort her out. Even... Uh, again, even saying that sentence makes me feel dirty. What a horrible, 
horrible piece of slime this guy is. I don't think I need to state the obvious misogyny and machismo and all these other terrible things uh, about Randall Tarley. Yeah, okay, fine. Good soldier, yes, he's restored order, fine. We will see the realm make use of him yet, but he, himself, terrible. And the type of notion of rape being used as some kind of educational tool, is that what you're suggesting? Uh, I'm this close to sweeping my mic off the desk and throwing my computer through the window. What a... Dick isn't strong enough a word. It, he is just awful. Let's not talk about him. Fuck off, Randall. You're gone. So, Heil. Okay, he has another plum to add in his I support Brienne hat. He's left his job over her, which is definitely above that minimum baseline of the least he can do. Although there is room for suspicion there as well if we want to be kind of Brienne-ish about it. He didn't actually leave. He was fired. But then he was fired for supporting Brienne, so you can take it however you like, really. Brienne comes down on a definitive way to take it. Golden land. That's what he sees in this. I mean to save the girl, not sell her. I swore a vow. I don't recall I did. I side with Brienne on this line of thinking, especially when the idea of marrying Brienne comes up later like we spoke about. I do find it interesting to think of Hyle's guilt turning him around and wanting to repay for past mistakes, and I can easily believe he's stating his intent to earn money because he doesn't want to hurt his pride by admitting what he's actually doing, but I'm much quicker to believe there is only one aspect of his need to find a new role, a new purpose, and new gold. Regardless, the three depart maiden pool together. And then that trio becomes a quadruple, or a quintuple if you include dog, which you definitely should. Yes, acting as their guide, we are now introduced to the famous Septim Maribold, probably the coolest Septim we ever meet in the series, and the man who will soon deliver his famous speech, and who we witness being genuinely awesome to the small folk of the world. Maribold is just a great guy. We see his interactions and his trading with the small folk. He, is, he and his kind are a huge part of that structure with the small folk and how this world actually works, the, the network, even though they get zero credit or recognition. I don't think many characters bother giving wandering septons much of their thinking time so far in this series. It's a gentle interaction with the small folk than the Brotherhood had, and we need both sides of that coin, or otherwise you just end up with miniaturization. We said in earlier Brienne chapters that she needs to see there is good in the world and something worth fighting for, and there's no better example than Maribold really. She especially needs to meet him after a chapter where everyone might be evil and where killing is required. Now we get to watch a man more interested in growth and nurturing and sharing food and stories than death and control. And that's a pretty big contrast to the High Sparrow that we'll meet next week, but still. There's some hints in there for the rereader as well, mainly his size and his huge hands, his inability to read, etc., and certainly the sins he supposedly had in his youth, so we can start piecing those together. Mirabolt himself proves his worth quickly as they take a new road that is sort of similar to the one Brienne has travelled before, as was the case earlier. Now they are going along the coast of the Bay of Crabs, making their way north, or northwestish. Rereaders know that if he's worth something as a guide now, Mirabolt is going to triple in value when they actually reach the, uh, the Quiet Isle. Maribold talks to them about their eventual goal of finding Sansa, and Brienne is too embarrassed by Hyle's presence to ask out loud, but she secretly asks for a prayer. It's a prayer for strength and luck, sure, but I think it's also a prayer that they would find Sansa alive, because the fact that Brienne seems to dance around a bit here is if we were to find Sansa with supposed Sandor's gang, it's not going to be good news about her condition or what she's been through, is it? As we go, we not only find new lands, but new people. People hidden from the worst that the story and the war has to offer. And again, Maribold has heartwarming interactions with them. 
It's another example of what Brienne is fighting for. She's fighting for all these people. And note that we're getting some warm-up now for the Broken Man speech. When Meribald mentions these people, no Lord Mouton, but have never seen him, uh, have never seen other places. And he's been doing this route for 40 years now. Wow. He discusses a world the game players will not know, a village is too small to have a name and such like that. Places only noted when they're being used in a war strategy. This is the real world, this is actually the majority of the world that gets ignored by the nobility and the class that we're used to. And we also get to see the Seven as seen by the small folk, which we get glimpses of throughout, but this might be our, our best look here. Even here, even now, Brienne brings her distress, there's a quote. The back roads are the ones the outlaws use, and the caves would make fine places for hunted men to hide. A prickle of suspicion made Brienne wonder just how well Sir Hyle knew this man. Yeah, even in this situation, even if this really nice guy, Brienne, just can't help but wonder now that's what this, uh, even this initial foray into the wild has done to her. And we also get some talk of wolves, which we always like. We get some talk of Nymeria. And I really hope that Dog doesn't wind up on the wrong side of her eventually. That would be, yeah, not good. Maribald, he mentions these three skulking men, remnants of a battle. And again, that's clues, isn't it? Maribald knows the type because he was the type. But does he intend to fight them? No. He has more gentle solutions, something Sir Hyle philosophically disagrees with, which leads Podrick to ask, is a broken man an outlaw? And away we go. And some parts of this series I just cared too much about to properly analyse, and, you know, we did mention it at the top. These last two pages or so, they're just too good in so many ways, so I'll, I'll pick a few notes out, but overall, just stop listening to me and go and reread the thing. It's, I'm not going to do it justice, no one does. What it does do is it lets us shift our focus back to the victims of war that have been suffering even throughout this series. How many battles have we actually seen since the Green Fork or the Whispering Wood or the Battle of the Camp or whatever you like? How many thousands have suffered this exact fate that we're talking about here? And like I say, I can never do it justice, but I will say this. If there is a message of a feast for crows, it's here. This is it. I don't think there's a single passage anywhere in any A Song of Ice and Fire book that so perfectly represents the book in which it stands. We adore you, Septon Maribald. What else could we say? I will point out that this part about them just getting told to go home after the battles, that does stand out for me on this reread. And it's just one detail of many, but imagine that actually being the case. You fight for your lord, you risk your life, you see your friends die, and then what? I'm in the reach, but I come from Crackcore Point. And which bloody direction is that? And what it comes down to is, this is why good people do bad things. This is what war does to people and you've heard me say multiple times in multiple places i think this may be what's going on with the starks overall i think george gives us this warm loving family series beginning and then he's making us watch them become anti-hero types or possibly even something worse and that would be so much in keeping with his line of subversion it'd be a beautiful painting of the anti-war message look what this game has done to these kids i made you adore they're all slowly becoming not great that's not obvious with what Aya might be up to, and Sansa, she's well, she's being tutored by Peter Baelish, so that comes with uh, some moral ambiguity. Bran, again, much discussed. We've got no idea what he might be up to. And John could come back as anything. Rickon, he's off with possibly cannibals and becoming even wilder. Yeah, I could easily see that being the whole point of the entire story, that this wonderful family gets changed fundamentally by this war that they suffer through. <laughs> When Meribald finishes the speech, it is said there is a profound silence. No kidding. I don't think I would be silent too. I'm going to leave that one there because it's just too good to really look into. So that is Brienne 5. That is our third chapter of the day. Let us move on to our final. Our fourth is 
Sam Free. One, two, three. So Sam gets to connect to two of our recent chapters. As always, we compare him to Brienne's interactions with Randall. We're also only four removed from our latest Aya and Bravos, which, to be fair, really didn't show us any of Bravos itself, only the inside of the House of Black and White. Like when Sam semi-hijacked a brand chapter in Storm to progress his own story without actually using a POV, Arya's going to do the same here to show that she has started well in the mission she gained at the end of her chapter. Given that we see so little of Arya, we have to relish this little extra glimpse. We certainly don't get the same for Sansa. As mentioned back in Arya's chapter, this meeting we get between two of the most important people in Jon's life is a huge alas alarm that we can only dream about. We'll have to settle for Arya apparently doing really well in a new role, and the fact that she saves someone her beloved Jon cares about. Without even knowing, Arya affects the fate of Sam, Aemon, Gilly and the baby. Much more knowingly, she'll do the same for Darian later on. Even when escaping from Westeros, she's affecting it. These Starks, they tend to have that effect, don't they? So Sam too was much about him finding faith in bad circumstances and preparing for what was next. And we find that things really have got worse and Sam is struggling to retain any of that previous faith. They managed to get through the storms, no one drowned, that's true. But aside from that, everything that can go wrong has. Aemon's getting worse, Starion's less and less involved, Gilly shows no signs of improvement. Their coin has gone on healers, on boats and on booze. Only the last thing has actually been of any use. Sam is trying, trying and trying and it doesn't seem like he's getting help from anyone. Although, only Darren is actually at fault for this. Like the last, this chapter will be about Sam having to dig deep and find that inner fire again, which he thankfully does against foolish Darren, even if that very nearly lands him in major trouble. Still, it's a pretty lucky ending, so throw some more talk of Targaryens and dragons in there, and we've got a chapter. And it starts with what is the prevailing problem of the whole chapter, Darian. Sam is moaning instead of doing. Gilly is still crying. She's still not in a good way. And that's understandable, of course. As Gilly herself says, this is a sad place. Sam rationally thinks through why Darian would leave a room of death with a crying girl with all the money gone when he could step out and experience things that are happier. Who could blame him? Sam asks. I could blame him, Sam answers, because Darian is a sworn brother. Whatever the circumstances of how he came to the Night's Watch and came to the wall, he took the oath. He's a brother. He has a duty both to Sam's group and to the recruiting that John actually sent him on. They all agreed to leave the pleasures of the world behind, and he is not fulfilling, even while Sam tries so hard to do so. Ah, oh, okay. It is easy to demonise Darian for who he's become, because he's become a selfish little prick, but we can also understand why he's become that way, which is the classic sign of George writing. Remember, he never volunteered for the war. He was sent there for a crime he claims to be innocent of. This is not a John situation where he signed up and where he's had the importance of those buried into him his whole life. Darian probably didn't have that. He got thrown up to the wall, an essential prison, despite supposed innocence, and is now put in a position to enjoy freedom, booze, women, whatever he wants. He is a young man, after all. Is this or a lifetime of servitude either on the freezing wall or wandering the Seven Kingdoms sleeping on the ground? He should have a strong enough personality to resist such temptations, and even if he's not going to strictly keep to his O's, at least help out Sam and the others, so we can see where the choice comes from. But, as we said, he did it, he swore the oath. You need to get on with it, Darian, and you've not done well so far. His quote, He'd been days since they last had a fire, yet the wildling girl liked to huddle near the hearth, as if the cold ashes still held some lingering warmth. So it appears you can take the wildling out of the north, but not the north out of the wildling. She's still there, she's still got these old habits of trying to get warm and okay bravos isn't the warmest of places but still probably pretty warm to gilly still as for gilly sam focuses in on her painting again directing his blame more forcefully now that the news has actually sunk in 
As with last chapter, the guilt comes when he blames himself for putting John in the position to make such a decree in the first place. And you have to wonder how this will all be resolved should the two friends actually ever see each other again, especially if Sam and Gilly's time in Old Town gets even worse than it might be. John has his reasons, we know, and Sam has the mind to consider them, but that's a lot harder when you are stuck in a room seeing the result of such a choice. As for Eamon, how's he doing? Not good. He's weak, he's clammy, his wits are wandering. And that's that's the incredibly painful part to see in anyone, but especially in one so smart and quick as we've seen Eamon to be, especially when he starts talking to Egg again. Eamon is clearly not exactly on an upward slope, and we learn that Sam is not willing to accept that fact as he loses the last of their money on a healer who can do nothing and a ship he doesn't actually want to risk Eamon on. And not catching that boat is a pretty damnable choice. They probably should have got on it and rolled the dice of Eamon. As it turns out, he's not going to survive the next trip anyway. At least they would have got some use out of their money. Still, probably for the best that Sam and Gilly end up on the ship they do as opposed to this paid one, and Eamon certainly seems happier for it. So we can understand why Sam made that choice and why he's so reluctant to risk Eamon. He doesn't want to cause death, of course, but his sense of loss would be huge to lose this biggest supporter in his life. Would they even get in the Citadel without him? There's a thousand questions, but we'll find out the answer to that one. So probably does work out for the best, I guess. I dreamt of Old Town, Sam. I was young again, and my brother Egg was with me, with that big night he served. Oh, we do love these novella nods, George, especially with Eamon thinking about the quill and tankard that we saw in the prologue. I think this has actually happened in between two of the novellas we've read, I, I assume between the Hedge Knight and the Sworn Sword. Uh, I might be misremembering there, so correct me if I am, but I'm pretty sure they do reference going to see Eamon in Old Town. And first-time readers are probably wondering how quickly and maybe the others will reach Old Town and to what level they will interact with what we saw in the prologue. So this is a nice little kind of nit back there. For Eamon, only one goal remains. Find out about the dragons. News of Daenerys is now reaching Bravos in drips and drabs and Eamon wants Sam to go and find someone who might know or even that or let him go himself. He believes this is his purpose, his calling. He must do what he can while he can. It's as if he can sniff Daenerys on the air and he needs more news to keep him going. And note the good chapter sequencing of both Sam and Brienne being in busy ports. We get a description of the different Bravos harbours as well, which okay, uh, aren't going to play in too much in this chapter, but they do become important later on, so that's cool. For Sam, he just wants to keep him alive, even if he is being swindled on multiple counts by the innkeeper and the captain and whoever else, doesn't matter, he just wants Eamon to stay alive. Unfortunately, Eamon is more accepting of the truth than Sam is, even though it's terrible for us to read. He has this quote. Some were bound to me by vows and some by blood, but they were all my brothers. That's a great line. Jon Snow is supposed to be this great coming together of the two oppositional forces of fire and ice. But Eamon, he was the first to do it. Maybe blood raven too. Okay, no, doesn't have the Stark blood, but he is a, a man of fire in a place of ice. So it's kind of, Eamon is basically fire and ice light. Even without that Stark blood, he has half a life on the wall. So this line shows it as the best of both worlds. And Eamon, he tells us of his wanderings while he's lived so long on the wall. And again, it comes back to dragons. He's searching for meaning, for justifications. Dragons, Eamon whispered. The grief and glory of my house they were. Sure were, very true. And it's really emotional how Eamon connects himself with the feelings of dragons as he sifts through his family's history with the divine beasts. It's very similar to how the Starks feel about their direwolves. There's a lot of longing there. Now I just want to pick out one line. He says, shadows on the snow, when he's talking about his dreams of dragons. Huh. Well, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Maybe it's just a random dream. Or maybe it's going back to Jaehaerys and Alessane when they visit the wall. 
Or maybe he's looking forward and we will actually see dragon shadows on the snow. Maybe he's talking about John. You can easily look at it that way. Another quote. My brothers dreamed of dragons too. And the dreams killed them. Every one. So let's have a little rundown of Aemon's brothers. and How they dreamed of the dragons that killed them. Arian. Okay, he drank wildfire. So that'll do it. Egg slash Aegon. He burned up at Summerhall along with a bunch of mystery answers. The remaining brother is Daron, who died of a pox. That doesn't seem connected to dragons, but he is noted as having the green dream, so it could be that, that having that ability or understanding it drove him to the party lifestyle, or maybe Aemon is just taking two out of the three for his average answer. Another one from this little speech here. Fire consumes, but cold preserves. Now we're probably going to be able to apply that to quite a lot of the series come the ending, especially with the dragons and what happens to Jon and Daenerys, but we can't already look at it from series start. The Targaryens have flamed out, thanks to Ares, whereas Eddard Stark, head of a family that's been running for 8,000 years, keeps an old secret deep in his frozen heart. And to be honest, you can apply that a hundred different ways to a hundred different looks at the books. So Sam finally obliges. He heads down to the docks to get words of dragons and maybe find Darien too. Out into a night he goes, apparently as foggy as Arya found it before. So foggy he nearly walks into a canal which is fitting for what comes in later. As for foreshadowing, Sam also relates he's pretty knowledgeable about the city and how it works. He's even aware of the bravos who walk around looking for a fight, even if he's missing out on some of the key details that I will give him later on. So Sam goes on his little in-crawl, hunting for his friend, even trying to persuade himself, maybe Darien isn't so bad, or maybe he's just hurt or something, something like that. Sam doesn't want to believe bad things about people, like he now has to with John. The search turns up no crows, but two peacocks as Sam runs aground of the very threat he was just thinking about. He's not a lord, a child's voice put in. He's in the Night's Watch, stupid. From Westeros, a girl edged into the light. Hey, okay, sound the bells, here we come. A fan favourite moment as we realise who this is. It's so unmistakably Aya's voice and, and her way of speaking. Clearly, having spotted something solid and concrete from her past, I was unable to resist. She's supposed to be cat of the canals by now, with very limited knowledge of the Night's Watch, but she simply just can't resist, as we spoke about so much in her chat, her last chapter. I proceeds to not only have info on Darian's whereabouts, but gets rid of the two threatening Sam. She has a knife in her hand, quick as a flash, and this thin little girl is full on challenging two grown men, who leave pretty sharpish. We know the chapter times aren't exactly lined up, but in the space of four chapters narratively, Aya has become completely familiar with all the minutiae of the city and is also superbly confident in her skills and her ability to kill, or at least her ability to give that protection. She's seen so many things already that two bravos really aren't going to do anything to her. But still, this standing up as a tiny ten-year-old is truly brave. Throughout this whole conversation, we as readers are shouting into our books for these two to just realise who Aya actually is while they have a nice chit-chat about the Night's Watch and Bravos and Sam's lost ship, etc. etc. She even gives him her leftover clams. She asks if he is sailing to the wall, and you have to wonder, like we've said before, what if Sam had said yes? Would I have dropped this new path, gone and got Needle, and headed back with Sam? Who knows? But for now we have this, just quick quote from her. Someday I'll slit his throat. Even in her cover story, Aya has to have a layer of revenge thrown in there. She's really not good at leaving Aya start behind, like, like at all. And okay, she is collecting her free knowledges, she's asking Sam some pointed questions, but... It's once Sam has the info on Darien and the happy port and the dreaded possibility of Darien breaking his oaths even further by marrying someone that Sam runs. 
He runs away from Aya. God damn it. Ugh, frustration. And just like that, the conversation is over and we have to wait for more Aya later. Alas, alas to the nth degree. When Sam gets to the happy port, unhappy Sam finds happy Darian, as well as some girls quite forward in pushing their, their business upon him. We know how mortally embarrassing Sam would find such interactions, so it's probably a good thing he has this larger mission to focus on. But it's not good news. Darian's married, he's given away his cloak, he's broken all the vows, the vows that Sam and John and so many at the wall are either literally or figuratively giving their lives to serve. Sam tries his best to get Darian to realise what he's done, to see he could be using his gift to help the group rather than self-serve. He could be using their coin better, but Darian is having none of it. He speaks ill of Gilly, he says that Aim is dying, he says the vows don't count once you're off of Westeros. Most and worst of all, he says he is done with the watch. He becomes a deserter. And we were told what happens with those back in the first chapter. Darian tore his cloak off his naked bride and tossed it in Sam's face. Here, throw that rag on the old man. It may keep him a little warmer. I shan't be needing it. I'll be clad in velvet soon. Next year I'll be wearing furs, and eating, Sam hit him. Big cheer time. Everyone cheer. Everyone off their seats. Sam, who spent his whole life holding back, finally lets his anger out. Anger for Gilly, Eamon, for him, for the watch, for all the brothers Darian is betraying and deserting. And it's one of the most forward active things that Sam ever does, at least physically. At least with humans, not others. <laughs> but we have to love it. We can see the reasons why Darian is like this, but we can't forget it. We can't forgive his abandonment of either group. Plus, it's kind of cool to hear that Sir Piggy, the boy mocked his entire life for his physical condition, actually throws a mean punch and more than holds himself in the fight. Unfortunately, it also earns him a throwing out of the happy port and of the land above sea level. Sam falls into the canal, fully clothed in the middle of the night. Consider all we've got about drowning and Randall's swim teaching in Sam's previous chapter, only to get this ending. Thankfully, we get Zondo. Before that though, Sam fights. He tells himself to swim. He nearly gets back out on his own. And even when he thinks he is going to drown, the reason he doesn't want to is because he wants to protect Eamon and look after Gilly. Like his last chapter, it's his friends he invests himself in. They give him meaning, motivation and life. Yet that water still nearly takes him until beloved Zondo reaches in and saves our dear Sam. Zondo knows these dragons. That's how the chapter ends. We get to recall all the way back to Clash that Danny spoke to the ship's captain, giving how Zondo knows about these dragons. And there's, well, that's a tease, isn't it? Considering where Sam is going, where we're going to see him in his next chapter, talk of dragons is always useful for Old Town. And that is today's episode. That is part seven of A Feast for Crows. Well done, everybody. Very quickly, let me tell you what is coming up next time. Next time is three chapters only. This is the the odd one, so that we have four the rest of the way, and it is going to be Jamie 3, Cersei 6, and the Reaver, or Victorian 2, so the end of our Ironborn plot. So look forward to that next time, that'll be back on usual timings, more than this week. I thank you again for your patience last week, my anniversary, and for all the lovely things you said this weekend. Go and check out Davos Fingers and their 100 episodes, not just the recent ones specifically, but all 100. And of course, everyone out there in the fandom doing well, creating and absorbing and talking. We love you all. Thanks for this episode. See you again. <laughs>